So what's up, everybody? My name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors. Very glad to be with you all on this beautiful No Rain Sunday. So there's a story about Albert Einstein. Y'all know Albert Einstein, scientist with the furry eyebrows? Uh, he was on a train one day, and as he was on a train, the conductor was walking by and saw him frantically looking for something in the seat. The conductor went to Mr. Einstein and said, hey, can I help you with anything? And he said, I'm looking for my ticket. The conductor went to Albert Einstein and said, Professor, everybody knows who you are. We know that you're not trying to scam anybody. It's okay, just have a seat. The conductor walked away, and five minutes later, he returned, and Albert Einstein was still frantically looking for his ticket. Again, he went up to him and said, Mr. Einstein, sir, everybody knows who you are. You don't need to show us a ticket. Professor Einstein looked at him and said, it is not that I don't know who I am, it's just that I have no idea where I'm going. <laughs> Albert Einstein that day, uh, th that story reveals two of the most fundamental questions that every human being born on the face of the earth wrestles with. Who am I and where am I going? To say it another way, all of us have two questions that our soul will wrestle with for the rest of our lives. The question of identity and the question of direction and purpose. Who am I? What was I created for? What is my purpose? Better stated, where is the train of my life headed? So we're in week three of the series on commissioned, connecting our faith and our work. And one of the biggest topics that I've talked to so many people with over the years is discernment. How do I know that I am doing what God wants me to do with my life? You know, that's a really big question, because your life is the sum total of the decisions that you have made. Now, a lot of us can blame our parents, we can blame our cities, we can blame a number of things, but where you are right now in your life is the sum total of the decisions that you and I have made. And so, most people want to make better decisions. We want to know, what is it that God wants me to do with my life? We want to have clarity about that. And so this question of discernment is a pretty uh, large one as it pertains to all of our lives and certainly our jobs as well. So let me define discernment for us so we're all on the same page. Discernment is to distinguish, to separate out by diligent search to examine. It is hearing from the Holy Spirit as to what you should be doing and then allowing those words and promptings, not your own intuition, or desires to direct the steps that you're taking. So very quickly about this definition, it's to separate out by a diligent search. So the one thing I want you to know, first and foremost, is that discernment is an active, not a passive process. So if what you have come today to do is to sit down and to listen to a 38-minute sermon on discernment, and then that's going to solve all your problems, I got bad news for you. This is hopefully just the first step in the process of discernment that you are called to do in your life, to be able to separate by a diligent search. Now, all throughout the Bible, this topic of discernment is discussed. Uh, in Philippians 1 and 9, it says, uh, it's written by a man named Paul, and Paul is praying. He says, and I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and in every kind of discernment, not some kinds but in every kind of discernment, meaning the will of God for your life is that you and I would continue to grow in every single kind of discernment. He says, so that you may approve the things 
that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Now, as a pastor for the last eight, nine years, um, one of the biggest questions that I've gotten over and over again is, Pastor, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing with my life with respect to my job. A lot of people in this room right now, you're wondering what kind of job you should pursue. You're at a job right now where you are wondering, should you stay or should you leave? Or you're at your job and you're not asking those questions, but there are a myriad of decisions that you need to make on a day-by-day basis at your job. And in general, all of us, whether it's a job or our lives, our relationships, your faith, all of us need discernment to understand what is God's will for my life. So from the gate, I want to talk about a couple of types of decisions, some things that qualify as being discernible. So not everything is a decision that needs to be discerned. If you have to try to discern the Knicks or the Heat, it's the Knicks, baby. It's not no... (laughs) It ain't no discernment question. So what kind of questions qualify for one that you should actually do the hard work of discernment? Uh, Number one is when all options seem to be good. When all options seem to be good. And this is something that I've seen over the years, that a lot of times we get stuck in a quote-unquote discernment process between two options and one of them is not good. You know, one of the things about uh, last week that Jess talked about is like workism and this, this concept that we can get our identity from our jobs. And there are so many people that come to Renaissance, they want to follow Jesus with their life, but with their jobs, their jobs have become their identity. Their jobs have become their sole source of purpose. And here's what I've seen happen over and over again. This might be you, and I want to keep you from destroying the relationships in your life. You'll know if the option of your job is good kind of based on what it's doing to the relationships and the people around you. If your job is destroying the relationships that should be primary in your life, it's not a good option. It's not their fault. It's not that they don't have the vision that you have or the charisma or the drive that you have. It's you. It's the situation that in and of itself is not a good option. So number one, we talk about this concept of uh, discernment. You are trying to discern things where there are two good options in front. Now, let me break it down for for those of you who don't have work decisions right now, but it's just your life. Sometimes we don't need clarity. We don't need clarity. You don't need the Lord to speak to you. You need courage to do what you know that you should be doing. And you need courage because you know deep down inside, Scripture has shown you, your community has shown you, your life has shown you that some of the things that you're grasping for in life they're not good things for you. The relationship is not good for you. Those friends are not good for you. That path that you're on is not good for you. So before we start talking about how you discern, I really want us to be on the same page of what kinds of decisions are things that we could put in this category of discernment. And the first and foremost is whether or not all options that are before you truly are good. Now, the second one is that it's a choice of some significance. Now, sometimes, like, I love Renaissance. Y'all got a lot of, we have a lot of people from all over, all different types of faith journeys, all walks of life. To those of you in this room who follow Jesus, sometimes y'all be deep for no reason. (laughs) No reason whatsoever. You're like, you're praying about stuff. It's not that deep. It really is not that deep. (laughs) 
So in order for something to be a, a situation that requires discernment, it needs to be a, a situation of some significance. So one of the things that I've learned over the years is that we have a very underformed theology about delight, pleasure, and freedom. So the Bible starts in Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. In Genesis 1, God creates the world. In Genesis 2, God looks at Adam and Eve and says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but don't eat from this one. So God, if you were to go back to Genesis, we have two things that are happening at the same time. There are boundaries and limitations, things that God in his sovereign wisdom for his, his knowledge alone sometimes knows these things. God says not to do it, regardless of how you feel about it. God puts prohibitions on us. The earth is the Lord's. It's all his. We, ask, we have to answer to him, not the other way around. So God puts certain limitations in our life, and that is, it doesn't show up in the apple tree. It shows up sometimes in a way that we view uh, money, sex, and power, oftentimes. God does put these limitations in our life. On the other side, God gives us a tremendous amount of freedom. It doesn't even mention how many trees were in the garden that they could choose from. And God says, eat from any of them. And a lot of times, we get very paralyzed by our decisions with respect to uh, our jobs or whatever it is in, in life, and uh, we don't know how, what decision to make. And I think sometimes God is like, again, mama, you can eat from any tree in the garden. Pick one. You know, um, at my, in my living room, I'm in my kitchen right now, we have um, a candy jar. And uh, when my kids get me mad, I go in and pillage it at night after I put them to bed. And uh, my son, my eight-year-old, uh, who just turned eight this Friday, he, um, yes, celebrate my, my eight-year-old, Jameson, we love you. Sometimes he'll come up to us and say, Daddy, what treat should I get? And I'm like, do you want Reese's? Do you want Skittles? Like, are we feeling chocolatey? Are we feeling fruit? Like, what, are, what's, what, are you, what is your heart desire right now? And he's like, I don't know, you tell me, what treat should I have? I'm like, buddy, just, just pick one. I think sometimes we over-spiritualize everything, and God is like, you're free to choose. Just pick one. Yeah, Google or Facebook, pick one. Seriously, pick one. This job or this job, if all options are good, pick one. And it doesn't have to be deep all the time. Number three, um, and this is a really big one, when you are free to choose either one, so that these are actual options in front of you, not just speculative things that could one day be available. Uh, I played college basketball, and um, when I was leaving college, I think my junior year, I averaged 1.2 points per game. <laughs> it was a hard fought, 1.2. <laughs> Every other game, I was getting a bucket. So um, the, uh, it wasn't an option before me to go to the NBA. There was like no discernment process, like, bro, you averaged a point. You're not going nowhere. <laughs> So it has to be things that are actually in front of you. And I say this because a lot of times we get stuck with real and imaginary options. Some things are not even your decision to make right now because it's not available to you. So all options are good and they are actually good. They're verifiably good. They're biblically good. They're relationally good. They're good for your soul, your mind, your body, and your spirit. These are good options for you to choose. Number two, it is a choice of some significance. And number three, you are free to choose every one. So my friend, really good friend, Pastor Rich Velotis in uh, New Life Fellowship in Queens, uh, he preached a sermon series on discernment, and I love the way he described the kinds of people uh, that you and I might be 
as it relates to us discerning something. He said there are three kinds of people. The first kind of people are always discerning and they never decide. I like to call them analysis paralysis. You know, it's always funny when like, we'll talk to people about volunteering at Renaissance and they're like, you know what, I'm, 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 I'm going to pray about that. I'm going to pray about that. I'm going to pray about that. Six months later, they're like, yeah, I'm going to pray, man. I'm going to pray about how the Lord wants to use me. Like, bro, we need set up volunteers. <laughs> it's not that serious. You're always discerning and you're never deciding. Now, with more serious decisions, I, I, do, I truly do want to be sensitive. There are a number of, um, there are two things that I think keep people in analysis paralysis um, with respect to decisions. Again, weighty decisions. The first is a scarcity mentality. Scarcity mentality is this belief that unless I make, make the perfect decision right now, it's all done. Scripture tells us in Philippians 4 that it says, Our God will supply all of our needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. What does the Scripture tell us about our life and our faith? That God is rich. Now, rich people, of which I am not one, People who are truly rich, think about it, people who are truly rich, they have margin. I love to watch Shark Tank, and these people just make investment after investment speculatively. They'll be like, yeah, I'll do a quarter million on that. And most of the time, these, these bids don't even work. These like, corporations, these companies don't even work. They'll throw $100,000 out like it's nothing and then go to lunch because they're rich. And the, when you are rich, you have a tremendous amount of margin. And when you have a tremendous amount of margin, not everything needs to work out well. Scripture tells us that your heavenly father is rich. And just in case you make the wrong decision, you will not be permanently scarred for the rest of your life. Now, there are some decisions that we can make, specifically things that we could do to harm our character, uh, character things that would really make us people that are not trustworthy or reliable to be around. And... If you do those things, if, you're, if you truly tarnish your name, certainly that could really harm you in your job search. But I'm talking about you have two good options ahead of you. You are a person of character integrity. If you make the wrong decision, you have to learn to trust that our God is rich and he can make up the gap for the mistake that you made. Not just that, but God is not just one who's going to direct you once, but he's going to redirect you. So the first thing I think really harms us with respect to decisions about our jobs is this analysis paralysis um, because we, we have a scarcity mentality. The second thing is I think we just have a fundamentally flawed way of viewing our, our jobs, that we feel like the decision we make is going to be permanent, that once I make this decision, I'll never be able to change it, and that's just not true. There are some decisions that you should make which are permanent. For those of you in this room who are considering getting married, um, that is a permanent decision for you. I hope and pray that that is a permanent thing for you. I hope and pray, and this is not to shame anybody who's been divorced. Uh, I know that, come, that probably came with a great deal of, of anguish and pain. But I lament how flippantly people approach their marriages. They're like, yeah, the vibes were off. Like, the vibes were off. <laughs> But your, your, job is not, your job is not a covenant relationship that you're entering into. It's not. It's not a covenant that you're committing to for the rest of your life. It's a job. It's a job. 
It's something that you should do. And if it doesn't work out, do something different. So the first kind of people are analysis paralysis. One of these quotes that I've read a number of years ago stopped me dead in my tracks. It's been something that has haunted me for years whenever I find myself in analysis paralysis. This is Frederick Douglass, the abolitionist, talking. He says, I prayed for 20 years but received no answer until I prayed with my legs. You will probably get, sometimes you will get more clarity about where God wants you to walk when you start walking. And sometimes God will direct better moving feet. So the first people are analysis paralysis. They're always discerning, always let me pray about this, never deciding. The second group of people are, they're uh, impulsive. They're deciding quickly, never spending the, the time that Scripture tells us to, uh, to, to truly be able to prepare for larger decisions. They're always deciding quickly, never discerning. Uh, James 1, 5 and 8, James says, Now if any of you lacks wisdom, if you lack wisdom, if you don't know what thing to do, he or she should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. So one of the images that I love from this scripture in James is that the person who's impulsive and, and, and not moving out of wisdom is like someone who is unstable in all their ways, and uh, they're double-minded. And they're, the image is like a person in a, in, a, in a boat who's being tossed back and forth by the wind. And one of the ways to guard ourselves from being this type of person is to be a person who actually submits to the process of discernment. We're going to get to that process in just a second. And the last group of people, the people that we should aim to be, are people who decide, who make definitive decisions from discernment. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, one of my favorite scriptures, says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding in all of your ways. And all of the time, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. He will make straight your paths. Now, this is where we want to be. We want to be people who are walking down straight paths. But very briefly, before we really dive into how do you actually make these, these questions, this series is called, like, Faith at Work. And there's no shortcut to actually having faith. Genesis 15 is one of my favorite scriptures, and it's a story about a man named Abraham. Abraham is referred to oftentimes as the father of faith. Abraham, in his land of Ur, had all of this wealth, all of this land, all of these connections, all of these relationships. And scripture says that God told Abraham to leave that comfort zone and to go to a place that he will show him. So I want to make sure you all understand this crystal clear. The life of faith is moving away from certainty to uncertainty. The life of what it means to actually live a life of faith is that you leave behind the previous comforts and you start to step out and you go and trust that God is going to show you steps four, five, and six while you're taking steps one, two, and three. And so today, I, I don't want anybody to be frustrated at the end of the day saying, I don't have any more clarity. Uh, I hope you get a little bit more clarity about the topic of discernment. One of my favorite quotes written by a pastor named uh, Eugene Peterson, he says it like this, Scripture is not the answer book to all of our problems, but a doorway into the wor world of God's mystery. And here's a point I want you to listen to. And one of the mysteries of this life 
is that God is not interested in solving all our problems in the way we think they should be solved. So some of you are going to have questions about your life, your job, your relationships, and God is not always interested in giving us immediate answers to that. One of my favorite quotes by a man named John Bloom, he says this, God doesn't always make his will clear because he values our being transformed more than he values us being informed. Sometimes the Holy Spirit wants to do a work in you, and the work that the Holy Spirit wants to do in you doesn't come through giving you immediate answers to all of your issues. It requires that you and I walk by faith. And so as we are walking by faith, I want us to turn our attention to a a text that's going to show us what it looks like for you to make um, decisions from discernment. Romans 12 and 2, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Now, in this text, uh, the Apostle Paul gives us two prerequisites to being able to discern what is the good and the pleasing and perfect will of God for our lives. Now, I'll admit, these first, this first one at least packs a little bit of a punch. If you are going to be a person of discernment, if you're going to be a person who is able to discern what is the will of God for your life, the first step is you need to give up control over your life. Give up control of your life to God. It's a paradox that we see all throughout Scripture that if you want to find your life, you have to lose your life. For those who want to know God in, in, in more ways, we have to give up of, of ourselves. So in verse 1, Paul says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So this is an image that goes back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. So in the Old Testament uh, temple system, there'd be all of these animals that were specifically set apart to be offered to God, whatever it was, a lamb or a goat. Instead of a family using that lamb or that goat for some curry goat for their family, they would instead offer that lamb or that goat to God instead. Now, sometimes people get caught up on this concept of sacrifice and miss out on what Paul is saying. Paul is not calling people to physically lay down their physical bodies on the altar to be sacrificed. But what he is saying is this. We would see ourselves as not living for ourselves. An animal sacrificed on the altar is not for itself. It's given up for something greater. And what Paul is saying, if you want to find God's good and perfect and pleasing will in your life, the first step is to lay down the control that you have over your life. Now, one of the blinders that we have today, that I have today, is this resistance, this belief that my will is better than God's will. You might not be that bold to say it, but you believe it as well. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray, this prayer in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The daily repetition of everybody who wants to follow Jesus is the act of inviting God's kingdom, God's way of life into our life, is inviting God's will into our life. And certainly that is a difficult thing to do. It's difficult, first and foremost, because I know what my will is, and I don't know what God's will is for my life. And also, the other thing that makes it really difficult is many of us, myself included, we just have broken images of how we view God. 
We think that God's will for our life is going to harm us. It's negative. We oftentimes uh, attach a negative connotation to God's will on, on our life, and um, certainly in my own life. You and I need to be healed from the negative images that we have of, of God. So in verse 1, the reason that Paul gives us to actually give up control of our life, he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, Paul is saying, not in view of what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross, in view of that, keeping that in your, um, in your dashboard, in view of that, now I want you to present your body as a living sacrifice. And that if you lose sight of what God has done for you in coming down in the person of Jesus Christ, you might be tempted to believe that God's will is out to get you, that God's will is harmful. You know, one of these days, um, I'm going to do a sermon series uh, where I look at all the times that Jesus reached out to people. There's a scripture in Colossians 1 and 15 where scripture says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know with a crystal clear accuracy what God is like, greater than your fears and suspicions, look to Jesus. There's two instances that speak to my heart right now thinking about Jesus. The first is when a man named Peter was following after him. Peter is walking on water, and Scripture says that he saw the wind and the waves, and he immediately got scared. He was afraid, and he started to sink. Jesus reached forward towards Peter, and immediately he grabbed him, and he rescued him. If you are the kind of person that can't follow through with your commitments, Jesus is not the one that's going to leave you out there in the middle of the ocean. He's going to grab you. He's going to rescue you. He's a good savior. He's a good shepherd. He's not the one that's going to leave you high and dry if you try to do things and you couldn't do it on your own. He's a shepherd, not just an example or a teacher or a rabbi. Jesus saves. A second scripture that I love that has spoken to me when Jesus reached for someone, it's a man who had leprosy. And leprosy meant in the Old Testament that you were untouchable. You had to stay away from everybody. And scripture gives one account where this man was untouchable. He was untouchable. And he sees Jesus far away. He says, son of David, if, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus approaches this man, reaches towards him and touches him and says, I am willing. You can be clean. Now, if you have done some things to your, that make you feel like you are untouchable, Jesus will reach out to you. This is the nature of God, that if everybody else around you looks at you and thinks that you are discardable, Better stated, if you look at you in a mirror and think that you are discardable, Jesus is better than that. And so we need scripture to show us a better picture of who Jesus is so that we do not have the fear to give up freely the control of him, our lives, to him. Still, that being said, this is a daily battle. This is why Jesus tells us, if any man wants to come after me, if any woman wants to come after me, let him pick up his cross, deny themselves daily, and follow me. This is the daily commitment and the daily struggle, and the daily fight, the daily battle of your life is not with another political party. The daily battle of your life is that every single morning, wake up and put your cross on your back and give up, give up the control of your life to him. But Jesus, he's better than the negative and broken images we might have of him. He's safe. He is a safe person that we could put the direction of our lives in. So Paul says this because the only rational response to Jesus giving up himself on the cross for us is to give our lives freely over to him. 
So in view of the mercies of God, what does that also mean? It means, the cross basically means that our lives demanded penalty. That is the message of the cross. That penalty was due to us. Wrath was due to us. And Jesus, instead of putting that on our shoulders, he took it on his back. And Paul says, and Scripture tells us in, in a, n- a number of places that as far as the east is from the west, so far has Jesus removed us from our sins. Jesus truly has paid it all. You know, sometimes I think about the people in my life who have helped me. And, you know, before I, I moved into one of my first New York City's apartments, uh, you know, the landlord wants like $75 billion of a, conservatively of like a move-in fee. And that's not even including the agent fee. And I think about the people who have helped me in that apartment or other apartments, people who have paid for me. Like, imagine someone paying your down payment, and they come over to your house, ask for water, and you're like, no, no thanks, I'm not going to give you any water. Jesus has paid it all for us. All to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. All right, so number one, uh, we have to give up control of our lives. Number two, if we want to be people who can discern God's will, we cannot allow culture to form our views. So here's the biggest issue for so many of us. We're struggling with discernment on how we do things relationally, vocationally, with our jobs in so many different ways. We're struggling because we have two competing worldviews oftentimes of the type of decision that we should make. So we're confused because we're trying to use an operating system of the culture for the hardware of our lives. So it's like having an iPhone and trying to put a droid I uh, software on it. I don't even know Droid stuff, but <laughs> and trying to put that on an iPhone, it just it just doesn't work. And it's at best, it would be very confusing and very clunky to happen. And so, if we are going to be people who are able to discern, we need to not allow culture to form your views. Here's what Scripture says in verse two. Don't take my word for it. Look at the Scripture. It says, "Do not be conformed to this age." This age, Paul's talking about the culture, the worldview, the the ways in which people were operating, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So Paul is essentially saying that in order to be able to discern God's will, we need to reject the cultural norms, uh, the traditions, and the things that could mold us. Now, our culture in New York City is beautiful. I love New York. There are some amazing benefits of New York. But our culture is not perfect. It could be broken in a number of ways. Particularly as it pertains to work, there are four values that I think shape New York City work culture that you and I will need to reject if we are going to bring our faith to work. So these four things are self-fulfillment, self-advancement, self-preservation, and self-promotion. So a Christian at work is not someone who is necessarily having conversations about Jesus every Tuesday. A Christian at work is someone who is rejecting self-fulfillment We talked about this last week where you were looking to your job to provide you the fulfillment that only God can give you, that you see yourself as a servant at work, not someone who is supposed to be taking from the job, but someone who serves uh, and does all things things to the glory of God. Here's some big ones, y'all. Self-advancement. I feel like so many times we make the decision, well, based on, will this advance me? If the answer is no, then we'll say, well, that can't be God's will for my life. Self-preservation, is this safe? Is this a safe thing for me? The last thing is self-promotion. Will this promote me so I can have the best life and the version of life that I want? Now, I want to be super-duper clear. 
it is really good if you're able to pay your bills. Like, success is not a bad thing in and of itself. Like, success is not a bad thing, so please don't hear me saying that if you are a Christian, you'll never be successful. I think that's the opposite of it. I do think that, I do know for sure that instead of choosing self-fulfillment, self-advancement, self-preservation, and self-promotion, we need to be pursuing obedience, purpose, faithfulness, and humility. Let those be the things that are guiding you. So Paul says that if we are going to be people who can discern God's will, we need to not allow culture to form our views. So as you are thinking about your life, as you are thinking about your work and the decisions that need to be made on your job, you and I will find the clarity that we need if we reject self-fulfillment, self-advancement, self-preservation, and self-promotion. When I was in my last year of law school, I was actually on track to graduate with honors, and I was very proud about that, and it was like my last semester, I had a couple of classes, and it was one class that I knew could get in my way, It was a legal research class. And this is in the day of the dinosaur where we had to go to the law library and use books. And books are these things made of paper. (laughs) And you like scroll. And uh, the professor told us in class, um, there's one rule. You are not allowed to work on this with anyone for any reason. This is a solo project. All of my classmates looked at the professor, nodded their heads, and immediately started forming groups to work on it together. I was the president of the Christian Legal Society, and so I, uh, and I had thrown myself out there as a Christian. And truth be told, if I didn't throw myself out as a Christian, I think I probably would have done this. But I wanted, to, I wanted to honor God with this last semester of my life. I wanted to reject what is the safest thing and say, you know what? I'm going to do the hard work, and I'm going to work on this project by myself. And I always believe, like, God, you're going to bless me. You, oh, Lord, you're going to bless me indeed for this right here. And um, I got a C minus. I got like one of the lowest grades in the class. And I I didn't graduate with honors as a result of that. As I look back on my life, I have no regrets. Not because I'm like a pious person, but as I look back on my life, I, I have no regrets of following the will of God for my life, even though it cost me something. It wasn't something that major, but it was something significant in my life that I truly did want. Let me ask you a question. When you get to the end of your career, when you're sitting down and they're uh, throwing you a retirement party for whatever it is that you do, when you look back on your career, what do you want to be the story of your life? Do you want it to be that you chose obedience and faithfulness to God over everything? Or do you want it to be that you climbed the ladder as fast as you could? None of us right now would say that we want that to be the thoughts that we think at our retirement party, but that's the way many of us live our lives. We live our lives so baked into the cultural values, and in some ways, these blind us. These blind us to the truth that God wants to bring us. And so now, finally, we get to the point to why you came here today. After we have given up control of our lives, and after we reject the cultural values uh, that may shape some of the way we think about work, Paul says you may be able to discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So there's a couple of areas that I would love for you to think about in terms of what is God's will for your life as it pertains to your job. The first is your gifting. Like, what are you you gifted at? And what is that gift confirmed by other people? Like, if you think you can sing and nobody else thinks you can sing, then it might not be a gift. (laughs) But eventually, your gift should be verifiable by other people, particularly people who love you and that you can trust. 
the second one is, what are the opportunities in front of you? So again, don't get caught in analysis paralysis, wondering about what it might be. If there are no other opportunities in front of you, this might be where the Lord is leading you right, right now. And the last one is your desires. What do you want to do? I know for a lot of people that sounds like it's an evil question to ask yourself. But more than a dirty, wretched, sinful sinner, you are a person made in God's image. And the Holy Spirit comes to you in your innermost person. And God has shaped and fashioned you with certain passions and desires. And you should pay attention to that as well. You should not let your desires be the only thing that you think about. But they should be a part of the process in terms of what you should be giving your life to. And then... I want you to take all of your passions, all of your desires, and I want you to write it down in pencil. And Scripture calls us to submit our lives to God, and in due time, he will exalt us. That word submit, I oftentimes think that it's more like a writer who submits their, their first draft to the editor. They take their plans to the editor, knowing that the editor has permission to change it however they see fit. So I don't want you to get caught in analysis paralysis. I want you to make your first draft. I want you to make the decision and I want you to submit it to God and allow God to direct and redirect and redirect and redirect you wherever he might go. Last thing, I'll let you go. Scripture says in John 14 and 18, he says, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. So an orphan in biblical times was someone who was not able to care for themselves or to provide for themselves. And Jesus says that if you follow in me, I am coming back to you in the person of the Holy Spirit, and I'm not going to leave you as orphans. You're not by yourself. You know, a lot of people believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Bible, um, not the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that God has given to everybody who has placed their faith in Christ. And the Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit is with us. And here's the good news of Jesus, y'all. He is a good shepherd. He will not just follow, lead you once. He will lead you over and over and over again. And my hope and my prayer is that we will be people who walk in confidence with an unanxious presence that God is with us. And if we get it wrong, he'll direct us and redirect us over and over again. We just need to humbly submit all of our lives and our plans to him. Jesus, um, I thank you for this, the opportunity we have to look at such a large topic of discernment. And I pray that, Lord, you would give us either the clarity or the courage we need to make these decisions. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.